Welcome to NLP Talks with Laura Evans, a podcast for people looking to unleash their potential in business and life. I'm Laura Evans, international trainer of NLP and host for this podcast series. Join me for insightful interviews with people that know firsthand just how NLP can change lives and they'll share with you tips and strategies to help you clear your path to success. Stay tuned. Hey, how you doing? And welcome. Thank you for joining me. My name is Laura Evans and I'm the founder and lead trainer here at Unleash Your Potential. And of course, your host for this podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome you today to the Mental Health Mini-Series. During May 2020 here in the UK, during Mental Health Awareness Week, we recorded live a number of interviews around mental health. Today, I'm going to share with you episode number one, and it's my mental health journey. A number of years ago now, I went through a really bad patch. My sheer grit and determination almost broke me alongside a number of life events. I was left with anxiety and depression, feeling like I was no longer able to cope. Luckily for me, my life led me down a path towards NLP and it changed my life. This episode does have a little health warning on it. It's a very raw episode. It was probably the first time I had ever shared my story in detail. I've been told that it inspires people and I hope it inspires you too. And the more we talk about our mental health, the more it becomes acceptable for people to put their hand up and ask for help. So without further ado, let's get started. Mental Health Awareness Week is a week that, if I'm honest, I don't think we should have, but I'm really glad we do. Because when I first started suffering with my mental health, it wasn't something anybody talked about. I was in a corporate job at the time, and mental health wasn't even a phrase at that point, I don't think. And it was a struggle. Um, I was a young woman um, in a male-dominated environment in the early part of my career, having come out of uni. I was working in manufacturing. Um, and I was a young woman in a very male-dominated environment. And we didn't talk about how we felt. We didn't share the struggles that we had. It was very much a stip a stiff upper lip for those of you here in the UK you'll know all about that um and that is how we managed mental health and many of you um will remember what that was like i mean i came into the workforce out of uni in about 2002 and to consider us now sat here recording this in 2020 to hear how far we have all come in being honest about our mental health and being able and willing to talk openly about it. I wish back in 2002, um, we had been able to talk as openly as we can now. Uh, my story is one of resilience, tenacity, sheer guts and determination, uh, wishing never to be beaten to the point that that sheer grit and determination almost broke me. It's a time of my life um, that 
I think has informed who I am today and how I choose to help people. Unleash Your Potential, my training company, was set up with a mission to help people to escape their fears, to grow and achieve the things um, that uh, are well beyond their limitations and perhaps even wildest dreams. Um, The ultimate mission for Unleash Your Potential is to impact 50,000 lives. That is my mission. How do I do that? I do it through NLP training. And um, my mission is to train 500 people a year. And if each of those people go on uh, during their lifetime uh, just to help 10 people, then um, during the lifetime that I'm certainly on the planet, um, my intention is to impact 50,000 lives because I believe that there is no need to suffer. And so I this evening want to share with you my story of resilience, tenacity and sheer grit and determination to the point it almost broke me. So let's rewind back quite a few years, (laughs) if we can. Now, um, I was born in 1979, um, so I was a end of the 70s baby. um, And I had a very turbulent childhood. Um, I, uh, my mum and dad, uh, separated, uh, multiple times when I was young and my mum has been seriously ill since I was about six years old. Um, so, um, as a young girl growing up, I didn't have the, the support that I guess some children will have had. Um, you know, I, I remember overhearing things that a child should never hear. Um, and um, those of you that think that you can have discussions downstairs and the children can't hear, I'll tell you what, children can hear all sorts. And I remember being sat at the top of the stairs listening to what was going on downstairs. And, um, you know, and it wasn't a particularly um, pleasant time all the time. Don't get me wrong. There are elements of my childhood I love. You know, I love being at the farm with my grandparents and I, I stayed with them quite a lot as a child. And I remember hearing a conversation that I should never have heard about my mum, where um, the doctors in the hospital, she was very ill, had turned around and said to my dad um, uh, that um, he should pray that my mum, you know, she either has a tumour or AIDS, as it was described then, um, and he should go home and pray that it was a brain tumour. And as a small child, I should never have heard that. Um, you know, and it was tough being a young carer. You know, when I was young, my cho- you know my friends would be out playing, and I'd always feel this sense of responsibility. Um, I was very good at mixing as a child, which um, some of you will find uh, bizarre knowing me now. Um, as you listen to my story, and you've grown to uh, know and love me either through my training courses, listening to my podcasts, or seeing me live. Um, but I was at secondary school bullied badly um, to the point where I used to skip school, and I didn't know how to manage my emotions. Home wasn't stable. Uh, school wasn't stable. Um, and, and I remember being at primary school, never really quite knowing some nights who would pick me up and take me home. Um, you know, we'd stay with friends of the family because my dad used to work night shifts. And um, yeah, never quite knowing that night whether it would be a friend of the family or my gran or who would quite be waiting at the school gates for me. Um, and it was tough. Um, and I think children are hugely resilient. Um, and I got through a huge amount of stuff. Uh, as a child. The one thing that kept me going as a kid was my horses. And um, my family were great. I remember at one point we were on benefits and I remember sitting on the bed with my mum with the money um, from our benefits. And those of you who have been on benefits will will remember what it was like to go, have to go to the post office and get the cash. Um, and we used to sit on the bed um, and my mum used to take the money and she'd put it in little brown envelopes 
Um, so for the electricity, uh, for the food and things like that. And there was one envelope for me for my horse riding. And of course, my sole interest in sitting on the bed was to make sure that the five pounds that needed to go in my horse riding envelope always ended up in there. I remember my dad taking me riding as a child um, in all through the snow and uh, and ice and um yeah the things parents do for their kids right um and and i love my parents dearly and i know they love me but it was really really challenging i learned some quite unhelpful uh, behaviors um as a child and i'm not saying everybody's depression anxiety is rooted in their childhood but certainly um i don't think what happened to me as a child um hugely helped me build uh you know good coping strategies My horse riding kept me going, as I said. Nothing made me happier when I was a kid um, than doing something with the horses. It was the one thing I could excel at. Rubbish at school. I remember being told by the uh, the head teacher at my secondary school that I'd never really amount to much. Um, And um, it's funny. (laughs) You kind of sit here now and think, I wish you could see me now. (laughs) Um, And um, yeah, and you kind of, um, you know, I, I remember... But 13 years old, um, on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon, I used to teach horse riding at the local riding school. And I used to love it when I saw someone canter their pony for the first time um, or jump a jump for the first time. Oh, it used to light me up. I used to love it. Now, fast forward then through um, my secondary school, as I said, I got bullied. Um, It wasn't particularly pleasant time for me. I was quite socially isolated. Um, I wouldn't really mix with people massively. Um, I had long hair that went all the way down past my bottom. It was really long, my hair. And I used to sit at the back of the class and I would kind of almost hide behind my hair because I didn't want to be noticed because every time I'd got noticed, I got picked on. Um, And so, again, you learn unhelpful strategies you know, and and you just do the best you can. I mean, that's one of the principles of NLP. We do the best we can uh, with the resources we have available. Uh, Fast forward then to uh, university. Well, I went to college uh, because, get this, um, I was so terrified of exams, I wouldn't do A-levels. So I went to agricultural college um, and studied horses because that was my passion. I wanted to be a horse riding instructor. Like most kids, I'd gone through the repertoire, want to be a nurse, want to be a vet, but I'd settled on my passion for horses. Um, And I went to agricultural college to study horses and also to study business because it was far too early in my career to specialise in horses just on its own. Careers advice, uh, study business as well. Well, I'm I'm glad I did it uh, because I I got put off horses quite quickly. And so horses then became a hobby of mine for years. I got through all of that, no problem. I found my wings at college, uh, away from home, away from the stress of, uh, you know, mum not being well and sense of responsibility and, you know, arguments. I mean, the house was full of frustration and tension quite a lot of the time. And uh, then I went to uni. Uni was great. I loved uni until we got to the third year of uni. And I was preparing for my finals. I'd pushed myself so hard. I was the first in my family to ever go to uni. A massive achievement. My family were hugely proud of me. Um, and I worked hard. And I remember being told in year two of my degree, people only get a first at university for one of two reasons. Either because they work their ass off and they work hard or because they're naturally just talented. I wasn't someone that believed I was naturally talented. And so if I was going to prove to the world that I could achieve whatever I set my mind to, I was going to work hard. 
And I started getting firsts in assignments first. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I buddied up with a very good friend of mine at the time called Sophie, who was naturally talented. Um, and um, it's the first point at which I probably started modeling other people. Um, and modeling, for those of you that don't know, is an NLP term when we take on board and we model other people that are great at what they do. And we work out how are they good at what they do and how do they do what they do? And how did she structure her essays to such a point that she got the arguments across and things like that? And we worked together and she took me under her wing and um, I started getting these first and all of a sudden I believed that getting a first at university was possible and I was like I'm gonna do it I really am gonna do I'm gonna push myself and I made myself ill and that was the first point in my life where I really did make myself ill um, to the point that um, I remember you know, waking up in the middle of the night, having to call home. And um, my mum and her partner, Sandy, who I referred to as my stepmom, um, I'm sure she's probably watching here somewhere. Um, and I'd ring them in the middle of the night, panicked, absolutely panicked. I remember talking to Sandy and her saying to me, you know, sometimes there was just no consoling me. There was no reassuring me. There was no calming me down. I'd got myself into such a state, panicked. And it reminded me of how I used to panic about my spellings when I was at primary school. If I'd skipped a day at school, um, the head teacher used to live just down the road and I used to wander down to his their house, who I was friends with his daughter, but um, and find out if there were spellings. So I was panic struck that I would miss out, that I would lose a day of learning how to spell. And I had undiagnosed dyslexia at, at school. I mean, who knows whether I actually had it, but um, yeah, it was funny. And, and I was in this third year at uni and I was getting ill. And I know my family worried for me. I know they did. Um, and I used to try and go home, but I just couldn't take the edge of this anxiety. This anxiety gripped me. Like when I got it, I got it really badly. Like I would get cold sweats. Like my hands would just be dripping. My heart would be racing. I could feel it racing. My breathing would go all over the place. And I would just have sheer panic. Now, looking back on it now, you kind of think, hold on a minute. You were doing assignments at university, like this wasn't life or death. But let me tell you, when you suffer with anxiety um, and you get in a grip like that, that is exactly how it feels. It feels like life and death. It feels like the world is about to implode on you if you make the wrong move, if you do the wrong thing. Um, and unfortunately, it was that excess of anxiety um, that pushed me. And I learned that... In order to get my first, the only way I was going to do it was by pushing myself hard. And so that's what I did. I had really high standards. Um, and the students that are watching tonight and listening to the podcast um, will know all about my high standards because I want people to be the best they can be. And that's what I've always wanted for myself. It's just that at that point in my life, it took over and it was unhealthy for me. Um, it was when I had my first contact with counselling. Um, so my university lecturers were concerned, my parents were concerned, um, and I went to the doctors. And of course, the GP on site didn't know what to do with me, um, unfortunately. And I, I say this with huge amounts of respect for the medical profession, but the medical profession's answer to uh, anxiety um, is to medicate. And that was never going to cut the mustard for me. Um, I'm, you know, as a person, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of medication. Um, and that was what they wanted me to take. They prescribed me beta blockers. For those of you that have suffered with anxiety, you'll know what they are. And it was my first contact with medication to try and deal with how I was feeling. And they made me feel awful. And, you know, and, and the only thing that people knew what to do was encourage me to keep taking them. And, and so I did for a while. But I just didn't think they were doing it. Um, the university also suggested I went and had counselling. 
Now, again, I, I have a view on counselling based on my experience of it. Um, and I'm not saying that counselling um, is bad for everyone. I think counselling has a place for those people that need a space to open up. Um, if they don't have social circles, family or friends that they can talk openly with, then I think counselling has a place to create a space for people to talk. But I had that with my family, um, you know, and I used to go for my hour a couple of times a week, I think, when I first started. Um, and then after that, it was once a week. And and I would go in and, you know, it takes a long time to build rapport with someone such that you feel that you can really open up and tell them what's really going on. Because counselling is a, what we call a content-driven therapy. You have to explain and explore what's going on for you in order to find a solution. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I came out of most of those sessions and headed straight for the students' union um, because I just didn't know what to do with myself. I would come out more traumatised and I went in because in 60 minutes, there's only so much you can do. And Pandora's box would be open up and I'd end up in floods of tears. I don't think there was a counselling session I went to where he didn't hand me the box of tissues. And, um, you know, and, and then I would leave just like in a mess. Um, it got so bad that they sent me home. The university sent me home um, and said, you need to go home. Uh, we'll extend your deadlines um, and, um, yeah, go home. Um, and so I did. Uh, I went home to Sandy and my mum at the time. And I was very lucky. Sandy, um, my stepmom, what um, used to be, she's retired now, used to be an advanced social worker. And I think I'd got quite a lot of experience of dealing with people like me at that point. And, and she was my rock. And um, yeah, and I, I eventually went back to uni. And um, I'll never forget my first class honours degree was riding on one assignment. I mean, you can imagine for someone suffering with anxiety what that was like, right? And um, I remember waiting for the mark to come in and then I got it and I was a bit like, wow, wow, I finally done it. Like, what's next? And then I'd go through the emotional roller coaster of like, oh, thank God it's over. And I didn't really know quite what to feel, but the pressure was gone. The pressure was gone and the immediacy of the, the crisis, if I want to call it that, disappeared. Um, and I learned to move on. I learned a few strategies from my mum and Sandy about how to deal with my anxiety. Um, but it never really fully went away, I don't think. Um, you know, I remember <laughs> them always saying to me, you know, Zora, if you've not got something to worry about, you'll worry about having nothing to worry about. And and that was just like totally me growing up. Totally me. Like I was always kind of like something I mean I used to I mean people talk about Sunday night blues well yeah I mean like I was all over that um I could teach anybody how to do the Sunday night blues I would you know just it would just be awful I would get myself in a right state about going back to school or going back to uni and it was a really unhelpful pattern came out of uni went traveling Oh, best decision. I'd encourage anybody to travel. Um, and I had a year out with my boyfriend at the time and we traveled all the way around the world. And it was, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing to get away. And I came back and I ended up working in the Midlands in HR. And um, I remember working for a boss at the time. Um, let's just say as an HR manager, her people skills were a little lacking. Um, and I remember going home at night, sobbing my heart out on the phone to my mum because I felt like I was being bullied all over again at work. Um, I remember, you know, this woman was, you know, not particularly technically savvy. And I got called in one day to the office 
And um, I remember walking into her office and her desk was at the far end and a big, long desk in the middle. Some of you remember offices like that. And I sat the other side of the desk as you dutifully did. And she sat the one side and she couldn't make a phone call. There's something wrong with her phone. So I said, do you want me to have a look? And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I picked it up, bit of a problem. I thought, well, I'll ring IT. So I rang IT and picked it up. Um, and I said, oh, we seem to have a problem with uh, this phone. And literally she snatched it out of my hand and slammed it down. I was like, you don't call them. And I was like, ooh, okay. I again had a habit of overachieving. What's going out of my way? There's a pattern in my life. Out of my way to overachieve, to overdeliver. Um, and um, yeah, I got myself noticed, um, which was brilliant. I got myself on a grad scheme by the back door, would you believe? So I went in as an admin temp, didn't go through a graduate recruitment program. They found out I got a degree, um, then found out I got a first class degree. Um, and then I ended up on this graduate recruitment program. And um, those, uh, yeah, early days were tricky, but I was hugely successful given the experience I had. Fast forward then into kind of a few years down the line and I was recognised as being so good at what I was doing. I was seconded to a factory here in South Wales. So I live in South Wales in England, for those of you uh, listening to the podcast abroad. And um, yeah, and, and I was recognised again for being successful. It, you know, it fed my need to be successful and want to be successful and to help people make a difference. And um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, had a good partner at the time. Uh, family was good, pretty stable those days. And it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty darn good, as they say. And um, I got promoted all the way up through uh, various different organizations. That anxiety was always there, though. I was always anxious I would get found out. You know, many of you will relate to imposter syndrome. And oh my God, did I suffer with that. I, I was desperate not to be found out. And it's one of those high achiever, go-getter type traits that a lot of us have. Um, and um, yeah, and I was terrified, terrified. Someone would like rock up one day and go, you just don't know what you're doing. And I took negative feedback very personally because that was erring towards this imposter syndrome that I really wasn't as good as I, as maybe I thought I could be. And um, yeah, it was interesting looking back on it now. So fast forward then a few more years and I got progressed and through my HR career, changed various different industries. Um, and for many, many years, loved it. And then um, I, uh, we're probably now in about 2014, I would guess, off the top of my head. And I was in a regional role uh, for a hospitality company, looking after about 2,000 people from an HR point of view, um, a geography that went from just north of Southport, for those of you that know the UK, uh, to Hastings. If you draw a line across the country like that, everything left of that was my responsibility from an HR point of view. So it was, you know, high pressure job. I was away four nights a week. Um, so I'd pack my bag. And those of you who've done a regional role um, would um, would appreciate the whole routine when you do a regional role. You pack up on a Sunday night. Sometimes you even travel on a Sunday night. Uh, and then if you're lucky, you get home on a Thursday night or maybe a Friday and then you kind of crash. And I did that for a good 12 months. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I was with an amazing team of people, an amazing HR team who supported my, my colleagues and an amazing business group that I worked with. And I loved those days. Only the underlying traits were still there. And I had a number of things that happened to me in very short succession. And, and in NLP, we talk about how significant emotional events that happen in your life. If you have an event, which is what we call a significant emotional event. So it's uh, there is a significant rate of change in emotions 
um, so fast that the unconscious mind can't uh, cope, can't deliver uh, and and uh, process what's going on. And also if the state change is massive, so from being very relaxed to being terrified, um, you know, those significant emotional events really cause um, our unconscious mind a lot of problems and our unconscious mind controls our emotions and our thinking patterns and it's it's your powerhouse so to speak of your of your body and your thinking and um yeah so I was away and the pressure at work was getting more and more and more and more at work we were asked to deliver more and more and more stuff uh we had less and less and less time to do in something I know a lot of you uh, listening to the podcast and watching the video will be able to relate to and it just got more and more and more and more. Um, I got married in 2012 to my uh, husband. We're separated now, but we're still good, good buddies. But we lost Gary's father-in-law, a father, uh, very quickly to cancer, lung cancer. Um, and I was supporting Gary through that process because um, he was very, very close to his dad. Now, in amongst all of that... Um, which any of you that have been through dealing with cancer and losing a loved one, you'll know how challenging that is. And amongst all of that, um, I had been taken into hospital a couple of times with severe pelvic pain that couldn't be controlled. Um, and um, cut long story short, I paid privately to go and see a gynecologist. Um, and I remember going into Spire here in Cardiff, for those of you that know it. And I remember walking in. And meeting the guy that was going to be doing this scan on me. And I went in and I had the scan. And if you've ever been in a big scanner, they did a whole body scan of me. And um, I can't remember, I think it's the MRI, CT scan. I can't remember anyway, but big, big machine. You get disappeared into this tunnel. And I came out and I was like, well, thank God that's over because they were trying to diagnose what I've got. And I remember walking out of that hospital and the guy came running after me and he said, I've got good news for you. And I said, oh, have you? And he said, yeah. It's not ovarian cancer. And I went, what? He went, you didn't know. And I was like, no. And he said, oh, that's why you had to have the scan. And I remember looking up, getting emotional now. Control your state, Laura. <laughs> um, I remember looking at my husband or husband-to-be as it would have been at that point. And I went, I had no idea. And so that was a split moment in time when my world got turned upside down that I was like, wow. I didn't even know they were looking for it. And then there was the whole phase of, well, I hadn't officially been told, so did I have it? Was he right? And then you go on a whole emotional roller coaster ride. Um, well, maybe I misheard him. Did he say that? Did he say I'd got it? Did he say I didn't get it? Like, are they investigating? Did more things? Do I have more blood tests? Like, what do you do? And um, so we were, I think we almost lost Gary's dad by then, but not quite. We then decided to get married. I mean, who'd have thought it right? We decided to get married 12 weeks from start to finish from when we got, um, it, we decided to get married. Um, thank you to my best buddy, Louise, who organised my wedding pretty much for me because I was still away at work at this point. Work had been told, obviously, I was going through this cancer scare. Um, and um, yeah, it was mental, mental time of my life to be potentially losing my father-in-law, and trying to support my husband, to having a cancer scare myself, not really knowing what was wrong with me, to doing a highly pressurised job four days a week. I mean, was it any wonder? I had a run-in with my boss. In fact, I had several run-ins with my boss. And I'll never forget, I was sat at my desk one day in the head office and one of my best buddies, Elaine, at the time that was with me, and she just looked at me and she went, are you all right? I mean, she hadn't got no half of what was going on. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Just, um, you know, leave me to it. And 
it's interesting because I think it, when was it? Last year, there was a mental health charity that said, came out and said, always ask twice. And um, yeah, I wasn't good. I wasn't good. The thing is, though, I didn't realise how ill I was. I had no idea because I was so fixated on doing a good job, proving I was superwoman um, and that I could cope with it all that I hadn't realised how ill I got. I just didn't know. My behaviour at work, I think, had definitely started to change. And, you know, again, mental health um, advice will tell you, you know, like sometimes you will notice it in other people before they notice it in myself, in themselves. Um, and that is certainly what was going on for me at that time. Um, my work colleagues were noticing my behaviour had changed. My my husband-to-be had noticed my behaviour had changed. Or husband at the time, I can't remember quite where we were. <laughs> and so... Um, and, um, you know, my family, you know, and everybody was telling me, Laura, you, we're worried about you. And I was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And um, yeah, and then I got up one morning, my alarm went off and I remember getting up and I remember swinging my legs around the side of the bed and sitting on the edge of the bed. And I just said to Gary, I was like, I can't do it anymore. He was like, what are you talking about? Come on, get up, got to go to work. And I was like, I can't, I just can't. Come on, you'll be fine. Go downstairs, have a cup of tea and... I can't. And that was the day that I hit what I call the brick wall. Now, whether you technically call it a breakdown or not, I mean, I'm not really fussed on the labels, but my life stopped that day. It absolutely stopped. I just couldn't do it. And I remember ringing my boss saying, I'm not coming in today. And I was like a broken record. I, I don't remember the detail of the conversation particularly well, because my mind at this point had just shut down. And, um, and I was just like, I can't do it. I remember it saying, you, you know, you can't just have it like a duvet day or something along those lines. And, you know, I mean, you've got this to do, you've got this to do, board reports to write and training to do and places to go. And I was like, I can't, just can't do it. And I remember feeling like I was a broken record. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And it wasn't going in and I hung up on her. And I remember hearing Gary downstairs on the phone going, I don't know what's going on either, but like, you've got to give us some space. And that was the start of my anxiety and depression. I didn't go back to work for about six months. I didn't leave the house for about I don't know, probably six, eight weeks, maybe more. Lived on the sofa on my PJs. And yeah, it was just, yeah, numb. I can only describe it as numb. It was almost like the world was happening around me, but I wasn't really registering with it. Um, you know, people would want to call and I'd be like, no, I'm not talking to them. I'm not going to be at the house. You know, like my behaviour completely changed. I remember as, you know, again, what we do, we do the best we can for our family. And I remember being told, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor. You need to go and find out what's going on. I was like, for God's sake. Right, fine, I'll go. And knowing that GPs, unfortunately, only have medication at their disposal. I mean, if you're lucky to get referred for counselling on the NHS, you get six sessions if you're lucky. I mean, that's not going to fix anything complex. Um, GP um, got out a sheet and if any of you have suffered with anxiety and depression you'll know the sheet I'm talking about um, and they hand you the sheet across the desk and say fill this in um, and it's basically an A4 sheet of paper and the way you score it determines whether or not you've got depression I got depression there we go lovely another label but I also had depression alongside anxiety so I had them both and you know depression you'll hear people talk about the difference between depression and anxiety and and it's I think they're quite difficult to separate sometimes Depression generally will be things rooted in the past and anxiety will be things you're concerned about that are rooted in the future, simply, but I don't think it's that simple. Um, but essentially, that's um, you know how, how people will generally describe them. 
and um, I got carted off for CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, I had that um, as part of my uh, medical insurance at work. So I was like, all right, fine, here we go. Let's give this a crack as well, shall we? You know, and of course I wasn't engaged. And I remember going to see, uh, I can't remember her name now, but Cathedral Road in Cardiff it was, for those of you that know Cardiff. And um, I remember um, going to see her for my CBT sessions and she stopped me about session two or three and she was like, you're intellectually quite enjoying this, aren't you? Like you're learning something new and something different. I was like, yeah, I was like, I, I like the diamonds and I can understand it. And, you know, and I get, and those who've done CBT will know about, I think it's thought, environment, thoughts, feeling and something else. I can't remember now. And, you know, CBT essentially taught me how to manage my emotions when I was in the grip, as I called it. But I, like, but I don't want to need it. I don't want to need this medication. I don't want to need the CBT. Um, I don't want to, to need it. I just want whatever it is, this underlying problem, I just want it gone. Like someone help me get rid of it. And of course, CBT, in my view, um, doesn't really do that. I mean, I, I liken CBT a little bit like lopping the weeds in the back garden off. So, you know, you've got the roots of the weeds um, and they'll grow. A CBT lops it off because it helps you deal with it in the moment, but it never got rid of the root system. And the problem is, you'll know with weeds in the garden, um, is that weeds in the garden will always grow. Lop them off, they grow. Lop them off, they grow. Lop them off, they grow. And this is what used to happen. So intellectually, I enjoyed learning about it, but she and I both agreed that it really wasn't going to get me that far. I was on uh, citalopram at the time, uh, which is a commonly prescribed drug for depression. And um, I was on 40 milligrams, so it's kind of a, quite a sizable dose. And the problem with antidepressants, for those of you that have never taken them, just to give you a, a feel for what it's like, is antidepressants, and this is my layman's description, I'm not medically qualified, I should caveat what I'm about to say, um, is that the thing with antidepressants is they make you very neutral. So what happens is they stop you feeling the lows, the real lows, but they also stop you feeling the highs. They stop you feeling the excitement and all the big emotions that are positive, And they just make life pretty much like, Ugh. and I didn't like that feeling. Um, and so I wanted off them. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that antidepressants don't have a role for some people, but I didn't want to take them. You know, I'd had counselling that I didn't think was any good and work for me. I had CBT that didn't work. The only other thing the NHS could offer me was medication. I didn't want to be doing that. And I was stuck. I was absolutely stuck. Because no one could help me deal with the underlying problems that I had with my mental health. No one could help me put better strategies in place that would work. Because, you know, CBT works at a very conscious level, like quite logical level. And if you've ever suffered with anxiety, you'll know it's not logical. You know, it's very difficult to logically process something that comes from what I now know is my unconscious mind. I was off work for a while. I had to go to a long-term sit meeting with my boss, which wasn't particularly pleasant. I was completely paranoid at this point. I remember going up the escalator, checking over my shoulder because I was convinced I was being followed. And of course I wasn't, but I felt like I was. And I looked and as soon as I looked, I kicked myself. I was like, there's nobody there. No one even knows you're here. My husband had taken the day off work and had to stay in the car downstairs. I quite meticulously planned this day. He had to stay on the second level of the car park and he wasn't allowed to go anywhere because if I had to get out of there, um, I need to know he was there um, and that I could get out. And that was the only reason I agreed to go to this meeting. And um, yeah, my boss, over a couple of conversations, told me that they wanted to increase the size of my patch, which was a joke. And um, yeah, that the COO, I think he was the COO at the time, thought I was, um, yeah, maybe pulling the lead a little bit. She was sent a bit of a recce. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a great conversation. I attempted to go back to work, um, but I couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. I think I'd managed a few months, three, four months maybe, and I was off again. Just couldn't do it. And so uh, we agreed to part company. Now, 
when you get made redundant in Wales, we have um, a scheme called React. And I knew exactly which course I was going to do. There was no question in my head. Because if you go from uni and the unhelpful patterns I learned at uni and those unhelpful patterns that I learned towards the end of my HR career, not quite the end because I went on to do some other jobs, but that element. In the middle, I'd done a job I loved. Um, in 2008, I discovered a guy called Tony Robbins. Um, and I got a cheap ticket, went to London, saw him, went on my own, well, didn't bother about that. Um, no idea really who he was or what he did. Knew he stood on stage, knew he did some stuff. I mean, I was up for learning stuff. I'd always love learning. And I remember walking into the big auditorium and I felt the bass in my chest before um, I ever knew where I was in the right place. I was like, come on, at rock concert? Um, I wasn't. I was at a Tony Robbins event and I had no idea what to expect. People were whooping and cheering as we were going in. And I was like, whoa, what are we doing? And um, yeah, got in and, and cut a long story short, full days I was there and I was in awe at how the the conversations in the breaks changed. Beginning of the four days, people were talking about how awful their lives were and how their relationships were a mess. Financially, they were in a mess. Health and fitness, they were in a mess. At the end of the four days, people were talking about how things were possible, that they could do things, that they were going to do things, that life was going to be different. And, and I was in awe at how one man can help what was probably about 8,000 people in a room change. And I Googled him on the way home. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I probably should have Googled him on the way there or even on a book of tickets. But there you go. We don't do these things sometimes, do we? And um, yeah, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And at the same time, one of my colleagues at work had gone on an NLP course, although I didn't know it was NLP at the time. And she used to get terrified of presentations. And all of a sudden, she was awesome at them. And I was like, where have you been and what have you done? I've been on a course. And so NLP was at the root of what Tony Robbins was doing. And NLP was at the root of what this young lady was doing. And I was like, that's interesting. And of course, did not a lot with it. Googled it a bit, bought, I think, one or two books and did nothing with it. So that was 2008. So when I was fast forward, then made redundant after I'd been really ill at work and I got a training grant, I was going on an NLP practitioner course. Now I was doing it because I wanted to help other people. You know, there's a pattern in my life of wanting to help other people all the way back to when I was teaching that horse riding as a kid. And I remember saying that's what I want to do. And I was like, but I, I don't know, you know. And I came home one day and Gary had done research um and um he said i've been in contact i've run three nlp training companies i was like you've done what you said well you want to do it don't you and i was like what yeah and he said i've run three and there's only one i think you should talk to so i was like all right so he said um i've told them you're gonna ring them and i went you what and he was like i've told them you're gonna ring them and i was like you need and i was like right okay and i'm thinking oh wow okay here we go so i was like right i better do as i'm told better ring them so I um, picked the phone up and I rang this number. And at the end of this phone line was a lady called Lynn Farrow, who, if you've trained with me, you'll know because she now works for me. And I had a chat with lovely Lynn. And Lynn is an awesome, awesome individual. And I booked. I was going to go and do this course. And I remember being there, went on my own again, not worried about that. And I remember being sat on that NLP practitioner course on day two. And all of a sudden, this light bulb went off in my head. And I looked around me, the people to my left and the people to my right. This is it, I thought to myself. This is it. And I had a feeling. I just knew. You see, on day one and day two on a practitioner course, I trained in the same way as I was taught. You start to change things about yourself. 
Like I'd gone on this NLP practitioner course because I wanted to be an awesome coach. Like I'd already coached for years in my HR job and I loved it, loved helping people. But I wanted to be a better coach. And that's why I went. And then I realized I had some stuff I needed to change myself. And I got rid of a limiting belief of I'm not good enough. And I got rid of some other limiting beliefs that I had as well. And I started to learn that it was possible to change the way I thought and felt. And it was just phenomenal. And I remember sitting there on that day too, having this little moment in my own mind. No one else knew what was going on, but in my own mind. And I remember looking at that trainer at the front of the room who became a good friend and mentor of mine, Bruce Farrow. And I thought to myself, that, that is what I'm going to do. And in very short succession, I had two, I don't know, voices in my head, flashbacks, memories, whatever you want to call them. And I remembered instantaneously one and then the other. When I was a small child, my gran always used to say to me, one day, Laura, you will have your own business. And when I was a kid, I was great at making pizzas. Um, So she thought it was going to be a pizza business. I'm very glad I don't run a pizza business. And I remembered that conversation I'd had with her. And then I also remembered a conversation that I'd had with the regional director of the hospitality company that I worked for. And I remember I remember saying to him, if you could create any job for me that you like, what would it be? And he was like, well, that's easy. You in front of an audience talking about something you're passionate about. He was like, you cannot buy that stuff. And I sat there and I looked at Bruce as my trainer. I went, this is what I want to do. I'm passionate about helping people. I'm passionate about making a difference. I'm passionate to help other people move beyond the barriers that had held me back for all those years. All right, I'd had a few crises in my life, but the patterns were there. And all of a sudden, I started to feel lighter for the first time in years. I started to feel like things were possible for the first time in years. It was just blew me away. And then I got to Thursday on the practitioner course. And those of you that are watching and listening that have done our practitioner course will know what happens on Thursday. It's timeline therapy day. And like most people, I had no idea what this thing was. I mean, it was just part of the course. I wanted a certificate. I was a certificate collector at that point. I just wanted certificates. And um, I'll never forget doing timeline therapy. Timeline therapy, for those of you that have not heard of it before, is a advanced NLP technique um, that allows you to get let go of negative emotions, namely anger, sadness, hurt, fear, and guilt, what we call the big five. And I don't care how sheltered a life you had, um, you will still have that baggage of some degree. I mean, I had a lot of it. I was really angry about what had happened to me as a child. I felt guilty um, for some of the things I'd done. I mean, you know, we laugh about it now, but I deserted my mum in a wheelchair in the middle of a train platform because I couldn't cope with her anymore. We were having an argument and I just walked off knowing full well she could do nothing about it. It was the tiny bit of control that I had in my life in that moment Obviously, I lived to regret that decision at the time, but as a child, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And um, yeah, you know, so I had a lot of anger, a lot of sadness clearly over what had happened. And I was in a pickle, real pickle. And I sat down, not really knowing what this process was going to be. Bruce took me through this process and I started to feel lighter. I felt like the weight of the world was being lifted off my shoulders. I mean, clearly nobody was doing anything to me physically. I was just sat in a chair with my eyes shut, having a chat, Um, you know. But stuff was changing. I was learning stuff at the unconscious level and things were moving. 
And um, I always, to this day, whenever I do timeline therapy with people, I always say, if you're taking medication, do not stop taking the medication just because you've done timeline therapy. And Bruce had said the same to me. And I got to the end of the session, probably a couple of hours. And I just looked at him and I went, you have no idea what you've done. He just laughed as Bruce always did. And I was like, you have no idea. Because of course he didn't know my journey. He didn't know what was going on. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about NLP is that we are able to help people without having to know the detail, without having to know the ins and outs of everything, without having to rake up the past like I did with counselling. And I walked out of that room and it was just a day I'll never forget. And although I get emotional thinking about it, it was the day that changed my life. Now, I left that course having handed over my credit card. (laughs) I just went up to Bruce and I just said, here, have it. He was like, what? I said, I want it all. I want it all. And he was like, all of it? And I was like, all of it? Just put it on a credit card. I will worry about how I pay for it later because this stuff changes lives. All right, he said. And then over a course of a couple of years, I trained, worked hard still, um, but I trained and I became an NLP trainer because I had a decision to make because I was an awesome coach and I still am a great coach. I absolutely know that. But if I decided to become a coach, I could have helped 12, 20 people a year. And that would have been awesome. And it would have been amazing. But I wanted more than that. And so the decision was easy for me. I'm going to become a trainer. Because as I've said at the beginning of the call today, if I can help 500 people a year and they in turn go on to help 10 people throughout their lifetime, that's 50,000 people that I stand to positively impact. So the decision was easy. And of course. I was an awesome trainer. And so that is where my journey with NLP started. And it's interesting because people often say to me, Laura, why are you so passionate about NLP? Well, the answer is easy because it's what it did for me first. That is the moment that it's almost as if, it's hard to describe, but it's, it's almost as if every time I take a group of students through a practitioner course, I remember what it was like. I remember we had a young lady who I won't name because I don't have permission to name her, but we had a young lady in about 17 that came on a practitioner course, oh God, a good few years ago now, and she walked in as white as a sheet, pale, clammy. And I remember looking at her thinking, if I'd had this when I was 17, how different might my life have been? I mean, I'm not someone that um, regrets things. I I don't think regret is a useful emotion. I don't think that um, it serves a purpose. I think we have to accept that we make the best decisions that we can in the moment. And so I think my life experience has shaped me into who I am today. But I wish I hadn't have had to go through all of that. And I love not now because we're filming and recording this in the virus, coronavirus, COVID-19. So it's not happening at the minute. But I love being in the training room. I love that the skill set I've got helps people transform lives. I love that moment when a student on a course does a technique for the first time and they open their eyes and look at me. Now, we're not going to swear tonight, but there is a very common phrase that happens in our NLP training room. And that's, Law, this is weird. 
bleep. It starts with an S and it ends with a D. And all that matters is that it helps people and it makes a difference. And that's why I love doing what I do. So in answer to the title of today's podcast episode and live stream about how NLP changed my life and how it helped me beat depression and anxiety, it was because of what it did to me on my practitioner course that made me believe that it was possible to change. It helped me change. I mean, I was off medication after that practitioner course way too quickly. And I always say to students on the course, please do not follow my leads. Um, if you uh, feel amazing after you've done timeline therapy and you've done a practitioner course, um, then go and speak to your GP um, and put a plan in place to come off your medication safely um, in a measured and managed way. I mean, I didn't. I just started to reduce my medication and those awful feelings never came back. And I think... You know, people tell me that I change their lives. Well, they do it themselves, really. I'm just a tour guide. I help other people to achieve what I achieved. And as I said at the beginning of the call today, and these should potentially exist to help people escape their fears, grow and achieve. That's how. Have I ever been on uh, medication since? No, I don't feel I need to. Because the other thing that NLP does is not only is it a little bit like Domestos for the mind, uh, for those of you that remember the Domestos advert killing 99% of known germs. Not only is it like Domestos for the mind and clears out all that baggage and stuff from the past and helps you reframe things in your head and change those unhelpful patterns and programs and puts in healthier, more productive ones that work for you and with you and for you uh, so that you can be, have and do whatever you want. Not only does it do all of that, but it also gives you a toolkit to be able to manage yourself when you have rough days. I was on a webinar this afternoon with one of our amazing students, Jamie McCanch, and he talked about having muddy puddle days. And I was just like, it's just brilliant. I loved it. So thank you, Jamie, for that idea. But muddy, muddy puddle days. And all of us, it doesn't matter how good you are at managing your mindset, will always have muddy puddle days, those days that are difficult and challenging. And, and even I am not immune to having those days even now. The difference, though, is I have healthy strategies to help me cope. So I know who I need to talk to. I know who my friends and family are that are around me that I know I can talk to. I have the support network now. I have all my NLP toolkit to manage myself. I know the tricks. I know that if I get anxious, for example, I put myself in peripheral vision and it dampens down those emotions. I know that if I have a recurring memory that's causing me a problem, and I can get rid of it. So it doesn't mean that I'm immune to life and what life throws at me. What it means is that I am much more resourceful now in helping myself to manage those bad days. And in fact, I don't call them bad days. Well, I don't even know why I said that. But those challenging days, those muddy puddle days, I manage them. And I don't think anybody, you know, you know, we all have mental health and we all have mental health that needs managing. No one is immune to that. I actually prefer the mental wellness uh, title because I think mental health sometimes has a negative connotation for some people. But everybody has good days and bad days. The difference is the strategies that you have in place to manage them and also your ability to let go of the stuff from the past that no longer serves you. And that's what NLP did for me. And it's just phenomenal. And I think it's a privilege every single day that I get to help people and step into the classroom 
the number of people that have walked into my classroom and said, Laura, I suffer with anxiety, I suffer with depression, I heard your story, you've inspired me. You know, I'm here because of you and I want a slice of what you've got. I say to people, I can't guarantee anything, but I can guarantee is you will get my everything. I will give you everything I can to help you. And if you throw yourself into this process, there's no difference between you and me. I'm just normal. But if I can make the change, so can you. And so I get to inspire people for a living. I get people um, to change and to move forward um, and to learn those healthier coping strategies. And Oh, thank you, guys. Just seen some of your comments. Um, And I thought Mental Health Awareness Week is probably a week where I should probably share more of my story. And I get emotional because I realise how far I've come. And it's amazing to be able to do this for other people. I love it. It is a privilege and a pleasure. Um, And I can see so many of our students on the live stream tonight. So thank you, guys, for your support, as always. And I hope that the more people open up about their mental health journey, the more that it becomes socially acceptable to talk about the fact we have bad days, the more acceptable it becomes to go, do you know what? I don't have to do the stiff upper lip and hide behind a mask anymore. You know, I can share my story now without fear of people judging me and thinking bad of me and, oh, she must be awful because she can't cope. Actually, I am who I am because of my journey. And I share it because I want to inspire you. I share it because I want you to know that it's possible to change. I want to share it with you because I want you to know that things can be different. And, you know, if I'd stayed in that dark, dark place that I was in, I mean, who knows what would have happened. But I did. And I found NLP. So that's the story, folks. That's the story of how Laura got into NLP. It's the story of how NLP helped me get rid of anxiety and depression. It's the story of how I've become more resourceful and resilient. The tenacity is still there. I'm still tenacious. I still have high standards, but I am way better at managing it. And I hope that by listening to my journey and understanding my story, it inspires you. If you've never suffered with mental health challenges, I would absolutely encourage you to ask the question twice. You know, when someone said, you say to someone, are you all right? Yeah, 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 I'm fine. No, are you really all right? Because it's sometimes not until you ask the second time that you really start to create a space for people to feel like it might be okay to open up. Sometimes all you need is someone to listen. So be that ear. You know, I often would want to talk but I, I'm not, I wouldn't expect people to have an answer. You know, if I was talking to my stepmom Sandy and about how awful I felt, I wouldn't expect her to wave a, wave a magic wand and make it okay. But I did want someone just to listen. So ask twice is always my mantra. Listen to people and be there for them because you can't ever underestimate the power of just being there. So there you go. I get emotional every time I tell my story. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um... But um, I hope you've enjoyed getting to know me a bit better, getting to understand a little bit more about why I do what I do, why I am so passionate. And I've hit the hour mark. um, So I think I've taken up enough of your time. If you have any questions, then please feel free to message me. You can either message us on the YouTube page if that's where you're watching this. 
if you're watching this on Facebook, you can message me there. Um, or indeed, if you're listening to this on the NLP Talks podcast, um, then of course you can go to nlptalks.com and contact me that way. So I'm going to let you go for this evening. I hope you're inspired. I hope I've given you some ideas about how you can help others. And if you'd like to join my mission of helping thousands of people to change their life, then get in touch and let's talk. I'm wishing you a wonderful rest of Mental Health Awareness Week. And thank you very much for all your lovely messages, which I can see have come through on the live stream. So I will reply to you all. Take care. Lots of love to all of you. Take care. Look after yourself. Be kind to yourself as well as others. Take care. Good night.